Good morning, family. My name is Victor. I'm from the tribe, um, the, the coolest um, group over here at the church. To those who don't know, <laughs> um, but it's not for Royden and Martin and all the other guys. <laughs> so I'll be reading Acts chapter 5, verse 27 to 42. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in his in this name. Yet here you are filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you it, you intend to bring them men's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of the, our Father raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on the tree. God exalted him at the right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to the Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses to this thing. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were angered and wanted to kill them. But Pharisees in the council named Gemeli, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put them outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Tarsus rose up, claiming to, to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After Judas the Galilean rose up, to the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from those from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or taking undertaking of men, it will fail. But it but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, let, they left the presence of the council rejoicing, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonored for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the word of God. Thanks, Victor. Why don't you join me in a word of prayer before we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we are reminded that the early church was made up of just ordinary people uh, like us present here this morning, compromised people, people with deep hypocrisy in their lives, uh, people struggling with all sorts of residual sin in their lives, people beaten back and down by the uh, challenges of life in this broken world. We come as they did, Lord, um, with nothing to offer. We come only with our need, and we pray this morning that as your spirit wields his sword, you would make something of us. We pray to leave here transformed people, 
a people full of a deep zeal for Christ, a deep joy in obedience. Uh, Lord, please don't leave us as we are. Meet with us and bless us. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So you would have picked up as Victor was reading that what we're dealing with in this text is a trial scene. Uh, You remember from last week, if you weren't here, let me just bring you up to speed. The apostles were serving the people of Jerusalem with great miraculous power. Multitudes were joining the church. Of course, the local authorities were threatened. They were jealous, and so they threw the apostles into prison. But an angel of the Lord came and set them free and instructed them to go back out into the public domain, back into the temple, and speak all the words of this life. That's what they did. From the moment the sun rose, they were in the temple speaking the words of this life. When the authorities realized that they had escaped somehow, they didn't want to admit how they had escaped, they sent law enforcement to arrest the apostles all over again. And that brings us up to speed. Arrested, miraculously freed, rearrested, and now we come to the trial. And all the standard elements of a trial are right here in our passage. You have the charge in verses 27 and 28. You have the plea in verse 29. The defense, verses 30 to 32. The friend of the court, verse 34 to 38. And finally, the verdict, verses 40 to 42. All the standard elements of a trial. The charge, the plea, the defense, the friend of the court, and the verdict. So let's sit in the gallery and listen in and see what we can learn. The charge, verses 27 to 28. Remember, the Sadducees are the ones bringing the charge. They govern the religious and political issues that Rome didn't want to handle. Uh, In other words, they did the dirty work, and this was dirty work. In this trial, the Sadducees are both the prosecution and the judge. It's dirty. The charge sheet reads as follows. Look at verse 28. We strictly commanded you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Back in chapter 4 of Acts, when Peter and John healed a cripple in the name of Jesus and then used the opportunity to preach the gospel, the same council issued a strong gag order. Here's the transcript from that first trial. Chapter 4, verse 16. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They issue a strong commandment to silence any public mention of Jesus whatsoever. But what do we have just a chapter later? We have Peter and John on trial again with all the other apostles, precisely because they were found teaching, once again, in the name of Jesus, and not just anywhere, in the temple, in the place of God's presence, in the very center of Jewish life. There they are, proclaiming the name of Jesus. 
question for us. Why were the Sadducees so keen to silence any mention of the name? The first reason is obvious, and it was in that transcript of the first trial that I read just a moment ago, in order that this thing may spread no further among the people. So the first reason is obvious. They didn't want the movement to spread. And that's why they wanted to silence any preaching or proclamation of the name of Jesus. The second reason is a little bit more subtle. They wanted to silence any preaching of the name of Jesus or any proclamation of the name of Jesus because any mention of his name seemed to expose their own guilt in the matter. Acts chapter 5 verse 28. Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. The high priest's choice of words is very revealing. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now listen to Matthew's account of Jesus' death. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and upon our children. It's very clear whose hands his blood is on. Notice also, that the high priest cannot even say the name of Jesus. You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. He's a lot like Macbeth in the Shakespearean play, who cannot even greet Duncan because he knows he's plotting to kill Duncan. He cannot even greet him because of his tortured conscience. This charge is full of guilt. The charge that the Sadducees are bringing is full of guilt. In simple terms... The Sadducees don't want the apostles to preach Jesus because even the mention of his name reminds them of their own guilt. And so by raising the charge in this way, they've actually put themselves on trial. What we have here is a trial within a trial within a trial. We'll say more on that in a moment. That's the charge. We move now to the plea, verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The charge is, you disobeyed the gag order. The response to that charge is a guilty plea of innocence. Now what does that mean? It means they may be guilty of disobeying the gag order, but they are innocent in the eyes of a higher law. The magistrate is clearly unhappy with them, but the constitutional court has ruled in their favor. They disobeyed man, but only because they were obeying God. You instructed us not to teach, but the angel of the Lord himself instructed us to teach, and so we taught. The plea is guilty before man, but innocent before God. Of course, we must obey God. We must always obey God. And God calls us to obey the authorities. The rule for Christians 
is civil obedience. We are called to submit to authority, to pray for authority, to uphold authority wherever we find it. That's the general rule. We are supposed to be model employees, model students, model citizens, because we obey God. But we must always obey God. And sometimes that means we'll be forced to disobey man when man does not obey God. When the authorities openly defy God, we are called to defy man, to defy the authorities. So we always obey God. That doesn't change. That's the one constant. We always are called to obey God. What changes is whether obeying God means submitting to the authorities or defying the authorities. Now just knowing that gives us wisdom wherever we are called to submit to earthly authority. Because God has called children to submit to their parents, wives to their husbands, employees to employers, citizens to government. We are called to submit to authority always and everywhere until it's obvious that submission would mean disobedience to God. You listen to the officer in charge until you have contradictory orders from the general himself. Now sometimes making these decisions is going to be obvious. It's going to be obvious where our loyalty of obedience lies. Like here in Acts chapter 5, the two instructions are contradictory. They are at complete loggerheads. Stop preaching Jesus. Go and preach Jesus. It's obvious who the apostles were called to obey in that situation. Oftentimes, it's not so obvious. Oftentimes, it takes real wisdom and prayer to work out exactly where the line is. And we can only do that in community. So join a life group, right? You heard Graham and Rafa here this morning. Join a life group. God didn't redeem us out of Egypt so that we could walk through the desert by ourselves. He would never have done that to us. He has called us to walk as a redeemed family together. The Christian life is not designed to be lived as an island. We are saved into a family. Join a life group. Let me add my voice to this. Do it today. It's how the Lord designed it. If you try and run it off your own design, it's not going to work. Here's my appeal, my plug for life groups. Rafa, are you happy? Can I carry on? Wisdom means real prayer, real engagement with community as we try to discern where this line of submission lies. Wisdom also demands that we know ourselves if we are going to apply this principle well. Because some of us, and we know who we are if we're honest with ourselves, some of us are prone to cowardice. And we will hide behind submission to authority when really we should be defying the authorities. Others, again you will know yourselves, have a rebellious and contrarian spirit by nature, by temperament. And we will use this verse and verses like it as an excuse to defy authorities when really there's no excuse. Most of us, or many of us at least, are some kind of compromise between the two. 
obedient when it's convenient, and rebellious when it suits us. We need to repent. We must always obey God, and mostly that means submission to authority. But sometimes it means disobedience. That's the plea. The plea the apostles offer to the Sadducees is this. We must obey God. The plea is guilty, but innocent. Next, the defense. Pick it up in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter makes his case, not by some kind of self-justification, because there is no self-justification. There's only justification by faith in Christ before the Lord. So he doesn't go that route. He doesn't try to self-justify. No, he makes his case. He offers his defense by preaching the gospel. Then he calls his witnesses. First, he calls the rest of the apostles. They were eyewitnesses to these things. Then he calls God himself. God the Holy Spirit is a witness to the historical truth of the gospel. The testimony of the Spirit is that the Father has vindicated the Son. The Sadducees hung Jesus on a tree. Hanging on a tree was an Old Testament symbol of being cursed by God. That's what the Sadducees intended. This man is cursed by God. But God used it for something else. The Sadducees killed Jesus. But God raised him to new life. The Sadducees humiliated Jesus, but God exalted him. The Sadducees cursed Jesus by hanging him on a tree, but God blessed him to the position of leader and savior of the universe. The Sadducees killed the Christ, their own Messiah. His blood is on their hands. They murdered the Son of God. They killed their own divinely anointed king. How should God respond to that? How should he respond to them? This is the extraordinary power of the gospel. Peter isn't just preaching at them. He's preaching to them. And it isn't just a message of judgment and condemnation. It's an invitation to repentance and forgiveness. It's an invitation to turn and be forgiven. Peter isn't just bringing the bad news of their guilt. He comes with the good news of a way to be reconciled to God, even for the men who killed his son. How does he preach this message? First, he identifies with them. Did you see that? This is the God of our fathers. He says to his accusers, we have the same heritage. We are in this together. And at the cross of Christ, the God of our fathers turned what you intended for evil to good. He took the curse that should have descended on the whole nation and he placed it on his son. But he didn't leave him in that cursed state. He 
raised him up and exalted him so that all the blessings promised to our fathers could come through him to the guilty by repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You see, Peter doesn't just respond to these false accusations in self-justifying, self-righteous anger the way we would respond. He doesn't just match accusation with counter-accusation. He brings the gospel. The gospel says judgment fell on Jesus so that you can know God's mercy. God's mercy even extends to those who murdered his son. Can you imagine? That's why Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Peter is offering them the only way out of their guilt. And we want to just pause here and notice that these three verses are a wonderful illustration of what the gospel actually is. Because we use that word loosely, don't we? We throw this word around all the time. Gospel this, gospel that. Do we actually know what the word means? If a five-year-old, as you step out onto these corridors afterwards, comes up to you and says, what is the gospel? What would you say? Well, we have it here in just these three verses. The gospel is big news, normally of a political nature. That's what the word actually meant in the culture. Big, breaking news of a political nature. It is big news of historical objective fact with massive subjective personal implications. It's both. You have the historical objective fact of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. You have the historical objective fact of human guilt before God. Then you also have the subjective personal claim on our lives. Repent and be forgiven. See, the gospel is not just out there as historical fact. It reaches in. As a subjective claim on your life, turn for the forgiveness of your sins. Turn and give your allegiance to the Savior and leader of the universe. Historical objective fact, Jesus was hung on a tree. God raised him from the dead and exalted him as ruler and Savior. Personal subjective claim on your life, on my life. God did this to offer you repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is both objective and subjective. Now that's really important. It's really important because if it's just subjective, if it's just about me and how I feel, then it has no basis in history and it's nothing more than a comforting fairy tale that you can tell yourself if it works for you. And it's one of a hundred thousand comforting fairy tales that you can tell yourself if it works for you. That's if it's Merely subjective. If it's merely objective, then it happened in history thousands of years ago in another part of the world, thousands of miles away. What possible relevance can it have to you and me in Madrid today? See, neither of those extremes is the gospel. Jesus is claiming to be king of the universe. He's at the right hand of God the Father. That means he's ruler and savior 
of all humanity in every age. That means he's your ruler and savior. He's demanding your allegiance. He's saying to you this morning, I am your king. Now, if that feels like it's a little bit up in your face, it's because it is. Jesus gets up close and personal. He gets into your grid, as our young people say, because they watch too much YouTube. I am your king. I am your king. He's up in our faces. This thing is massively subjective. Here's the other shockingly personal claim that he makes. He says, my blood is on your hands. I didn't just die for the Sadducees. I died for all mankind because all mankind suffers from the human condition. All mankind either openly defies God or ignores him or thinks they can manipulate him with good behavior. Jesus says, I died for all of it. Every act of defiance, every small, selfish Petty thing that you've ever done, thought, word, or deed. All of it. My blood is on your hands. Jesus didn't just die for the Sadducees. He died for me and he died for you. But the good news is that he died for the Sadducees. He died for a humanity wicked enough to take the kindest, most loving man who ever lived And hang him on a tree. Proclaim him as cursed by God. He died for a humanity capable of crucifying God's own son. His death and resurrection was enough to save us from that evil. The very pits of evil. And that means his death and resurrection is enough to save you from your sin and me from my sin. The blood of Jesus meant that Peter could hold out the offer of repentance and forgiveness to the men who killed him. The blood of Jesus means that I can hold out the same offer to you this morning. Jesus is here this morning by his spirit. Don't doubt it for a second. He is with us, amongst us, by his spirit. He is here as ruler and savior Of the whole universe. He's here as your ruler and savior. Yours. Not this other person who you think to really, you know, you think they really need to get their act together. Your ruler and savior. Turn to him. Pledge your allegiance to him. Receive forgiveness from him. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral space, no safe space. You can't hold him at arm's length. There's no lukewarm. He's a king. You are either for him or you are against him. But he's a savior king. He is for you, even while you are against him. Turn to him. Accept his offer of friendship. Why wouldn't you?
Peter's whole defense is not a self-justification. There is no self-justification. There is only justification by faith in Christ alone. And so that's what he offers as his defense. He preaches the gospel. His fellow apostles were all eyewitnesses to the facts of the case. But his first witness for the defense is God himself. God the Holy Spirit. Sadly, the Sadducees don't respond the way I hope you have responded to the gospel. They take the other option that guilty people have available to them, that we all have available to us, rage. Peter has touched the nerve of their guilt, and they are literally, doesn't come across in the translation, but they are literally split apart by rage. They are so angry they want to kill the apostles. Why? Because what they're saying is true. But before they can act on this rage and deepen their guilt, we have this strange intervention by a friend of the court. Look at verse 34. Enter Rabbi Gamaliel. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Take care. Gamaliel was a well-respected rabbi in a famous, a long famous line of rabbis. He's actually the rabbi who trained the apostle Paul. You read about him elsewhere. What we need to notice is that he's not a Sadducee. He's a Pharisee. And one of the important theological differences between the two is that Pharisees put a strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God in all things. It's what we called providence last week. And that emphasis comes out so very clearly in his speech. The sovereignty of God in all things. He reminds them of recent history and he shows them how God's fingerprints are all over it. So he says, Theudas rose up, but his followers were killed and they came to nothing. Then Judas rose up. But his followers also perished and were scattered. They amounted to nothing. So if this movement is just of men, you can be sure it will fail. But if it is of God and you oppose it, you will fail. Worse than that, you will be found to be opposing God. Gamaliel is a voice of reason. It's wise counsel and the Sadducees follow it. But of course in the story of Acts... It's so much more than wise counsel. It is prophecy. Because we know it was God himself who freed the apostles and told them to go and preach in the temple. So in opposing the apostles, the council is in fact opposing God himself. In putting the apostles on trial, the council is in fact putting God himself on trial. He was the one who put them preaching in the temple. They've put God on trial. And that leads us finally to the verdict. From verse 40. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing 
that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The council have the apostles beaten. That means the verdict is guilty, because you don't beat innocent men. And this beating is no mere formality. This is most probably the infamous 40 lashes minus one. 30 lashes across the chest, across the back, with a three-stranded whip, whip that left its victims, in most cases, close to death. If not death, in a shame-honor culture, a public beating of this nature was designed to shame. It was designed to bring maximum dishonor. The council had the apostles beaten, and then they reissued the gag order. Do not speak in the name of Jesus. Don't you dare. How do the apostles react? We need to read it again because it is so strange. Look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's a shame-honor culture. And in this shame-honor culture, they rejoice because it was such an honor to suffer shame for the honor of Jesus. They rejoice because in their dishonor, they bring honor to the name of Jesus. And so they rejoice. What is this strange joy that is glad even when it suffers? What is this? Because I don't know about you, but I want some of that. What can it possibly be? Our story makes it crystal clear. It's the joy of obedience. Did you notice that Peter's defense speech starts and finishes with obedience? We must obey God. That's how he starts. God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. That's how it finishes. It's bracketed by obedience. It was obedience to the angel of the Lord that put them back in prison and earned them the beating. This is the joy of obedience. And we know from Peter's preaching that this is not the insecure, fretful, self-righteous type of obedience that tries to win favor with God by being better than other people. It's not that. It's the opposite of that. This is the free, glad, joyful, peaceful, hopeful obedience that already has the free gift of God's favor and merely responds with a life of worship and thanksgiving. It's that kind of obedience. This is the obedience that says, I can give Jesus anything because Jesus has already given me everything. There is joy in that obedience. And the joy, that joy, is the fuel of more obedience, which is where our story ends. Every day in the temple and from house to house, 
they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Think about what they've just been through. Think about how the story ends. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Where? Everywhere. In the temple. In public. In private. House to house. The joy of knowing Jesus as king leads to obedience. Which leads to more joy. Which leads to more obedience and more joy. It's a virtuous spiral. We normally separate joy and obedience as if they're competitors. In the economy of God... They fuel each other. The more we step out in faith into obedience, the more joy we have. The more joy we have in our king, the more we want to obey him. An upward spiral of joy and obedience, obedience and joy. And the testimony of virtually everyone in this room, I'm sure, is that when I have done that, I've tasted this joy. When I have stepped out in faith and done something that I didn't particularly want to do, but I did it because he's my king, I tasted that joy. And the reason I did it was the joy I have in him in the first place. Joy and obedience, obedience and joy. Brothers and sisters, do you know this joy? Do you know this obedience? The prior question the all-important question that is in fact the answer to the other two questions do you know this king because he's the kind of king who fills you with joy he's the kind of king you want to obey with all your heart do you know him what do we have we have a trial On the surface, the apostles are on trial. Just beneath the surface, it's very clear the Sadducees themselves are on trial. At the very deepest level, they have put God Almighty on trial. God was on trial because in the words of Gamaliel, this was not the plan or undertaking of men. This was the work of God through his son, the king. This is a movement of forgiveness, divine forgiveness, joy, peace, hope. This is a movement that can never fail. Are you a part of it? If not, the king himself, the king who dies for his enemies so that they can be forgiven and welcomed home, that king, he is extending a personal invitation to you this morning. A personal invitation from the King of the Universe. Come home. I hope you will answer it. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone here who has not yet accepted Jesus as ruler and savior. Will you work in their hearts by your spirit today? And for the rest of us, Father, will you fill us with this strange joy, the joy of obedience? Not because we need to earn your love, but because we already have it. The freedom of obedience. 
that comes with joy. We long to be that people, Lord. We long to be who you have already made us in Christ. We long to be a people who can rejoice even in the face of suffering because we so treasure the name of our King. Father, you alone, through the work of your Son and in the power of your Spirit, you alone can make us that people. And so we pray, make us into a joyful, obedient people. In his name. Amen.